Roots Radio, we're back again. We have some awesome people on board today, some new folks, maybe just some old folks, but not around all the time. Um, so I'm excited to chat with you today about infrastructure, and um, I'd like you to welcome on with us Mr. Nathaniel. Hey there. We have back Mr. Scott Walkinshaw. Hello. And of course here is Austin. Howdy. And I'm your host, Chris Carr. Thanks for joining us again. Um, so infrastructure what do we mean by that well we just mean servers and uh, we have some cool projects over at roots that help out with that what is what does it take to have an infrastructure to have a, a server out there and maybe go from um, shared hosting to a vps to whatever's after that to a whole mess of servers all working together and um, and powering this site that you're building which uh, we know has millions of visitors and um and we're getting there, but maybe you're starting out small. Maybe uh, maybe we're just going to get there eventually. So let's dive right in then. Um, most WordPress people are coming from probably shared hosting land. So um, what do you guys think? What's kind of the 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 normal path to go from from just getting started with a website? You know, you've got uh, 50 bucks a year for hosting or whatever. Kind of where do you go from that um, next as you start to scale up? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I think it's useful to define a couple terms too. So like for shared hosts, um, I, I think that's pretty obvious. We're talking about um, a host where you get kind of like a slice of their pie and you probably have, you know, restricted access. Um, you're locked down to their software versions, although they might give you a choice and you probably don't have things like SSH access and you can't just, you know, install whatever software package you want. Um, and I think more than ever now, another option which we won't talk too much about in this podcast is what's kind of called like the WordPress hosting services kind of goes beyond a shared host. Um, but I mean, it, it is kind of shared. We're talking about uh, services like WP engine. I think Pagely is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, does anyone else? This have is tap. missing. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan of yeah, those There's guys. a lot of them. I think what, what you're talking about there is what's normally termed WordPress managed hosting. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of just, pulls you away from more of that um, server management stuff. So normally shared host is going to handle taking care of all the stuff that's installed on your server to run a server, but kind of WordPress is up to you. And um, the managed hosting, uh, they take care of the WordPress side as well. And then also oftentimes that uh, affords you more performance um, as far as being able to handle requests, but it also kind of locks you down a bit more in some ways. Yeah, I was I was going to say that some people just go from a shared host to one of those more high-powered managed hosts, and, and they will never go to their kind of own infrastructure, and that's fine too. But like Chris said, um, there's definitely some downsides. One, you're paying for that convenience, um, especially once you get up into the kind of higher uh, plans. I mean, you can be looking upwards, you know, 500 to probably $1,000 a month, and that would be the equivalent kind of power of probably something... Maybe you could be paying a hundred dollars a month if you did it yourself. Um, so that's just a trade-off um, between kind of price uh, and labor. And then, yeah, lack of if you're doing some more customized stuff and you want, um, if you want to be kind of confident in your setup and consistent versions, then you might want to look into what we're going to talk about. But maybe not. So it's really uh, up to you and up to your kind of use case. Yeah. One one big thing about that managed hosting is that it's. Um... So oftentimes the pricing is really dependent on the traffic that you get. Whereas the, the stuff that we're going to be talking about, it's kind of a bit more abstracted from that um, because 
you know, you're paying for, for hardware as opposed to that service of, of making sure that your website's up and kind of how much traffic you can handle on that hardware has a lot more to, to do with how you set stuff up and, and maybe more scalable, like you said, for, for a different price. And typically too, shared hosting and, and managed WordPress hosting will cover most, if not all bases for pretty much everybody. It's usually whenever you get into kind of the WordPress anomalies, your large e-commerce sites or your super high traffic uh, uh, mom blog sites or whatever, that's when you really need to start thinking about getting out of shared hosting, getting out of managed hosting and actually hosting your own hardware just because the performance gains on that alone uh, will be much, much higher. And you have a lot more control to tune everything uh, by, by hosting yourself by then using shared or managed. Cool. So now that we kind of know what, what's going on there, what's what's the logical step for somebody who doesn't want to go the managed hosting way um, to kind of level up from shared hosting or managed hosting to the next level of that? Yeah, so first step is is really using Trellis um, because out of the box that will take care of pretty much everything for you on, on a single instance, either you know a uh, Linode server or a DigitalOcean droplet or an AWS EC2 instance. Um, everything will live on the one box. You know, you'll have PHP, uh, serving WordPress itself, Nginx for uh, the web server, and then the database MySQL will live on the one server as well. So it's all kind of packaged into one giant uh, thing. Yeah, and this is like obviously kind of the WordPress default. Um, you obviously don't really have to make many configuration changes when everything's on the same server. You know, your especially the database and um, your uploads as well. And even when you're dealing with kind of sessions, um, that's like the default WordPress state that they assume you're using. So it's pretty easy to just have a single server and run WordPress as normal. And uh, I think it's important when you're talking about like just one server that it doesn't really matter what form the server comes in. It could be like a literal metal <laughs> single server. It could be a VPS as they're termed. It could be a dedicated server. Um, it could be an EC2 machine. It could be a DigitalOcean droplet. So we're kind of treating these as all the same thing. It's just whatever it is, is a single server that you have kind of complete access and control over. Yep. Yeah, so canonical version of that is like the $5 um, digital ocean droplet. Well, and then also, let's not forget as far as infrastructure, um, definitely staging servers, development servers are a part of that as well. Um, I mean, we talked about shared hosting and uh, managed services, I guess, like WP Engine and stuff. Um, but so, I mean, definitely high traffic sites, uh, you're going to definitely need some custom stuff, uh, you know, uh, some custom setup. But additionally, if you need like, you know, high guarantee and high availability yep. uh, between your, you know, when you deploy something in production, it's not going to break. Uh, that's when you need something like Trellis. Uh, you need to be, you know, have a, a pipeline because uh, I, I don't think it, you know, I haven't really looked into it that much, but I don't really even see how you would, uh, you know, go about uh testing your changes locally to deploy to something like WP Engine because it's all proprietary. Like they're not going <laughs> to, yep. they're not going to give you their server configs because that's their whole business. <laughs> and that was my primary frustration with WP Engine was that I can't accurately know whether or not what I'm testing locally will work as expected on WP Engine service. We just to, I mean, I, I know maybe not on our podcast, but we've been sometimes a little critical of WP Engine. Like, I don't even think they published the version of PHP on their website. You had to like secretly inquire as to what it's actually running or be on there yourself to figure it out. Um, but they do have like a Vagrant project called, I think, HGV now. Mm. Um, if that's correct, we'll put it in the show notes. But I think it's kind of meant to mirror their um, 
they're they have like a newer kind of platform backing their host and i think it's meant to mirror that it has like hhvm or something um so it sounds like they're improving a little bit um and we should also mention that when it comes to having like a single server um a lot of people's kind of like their first foray into that is often like especially in digital ocean um they have like pre-done base boxes where it's like ubuntu with wordpress and it's kind of your typical like lamp like linux apache mysql um, and WordPress running on it. And that's a really quick way to get up and running. Or they also have a ton of guides, for example, where you can just go through and manually type in the commands and you know, you'll know you have a working WordPress site at the end of it. But that's kind of like the first use case of Trellis is to replicate that, but in a much better and consistent manner so that you still don't have to know um, a lot of the underlying stuff and how to do this stuff yourself. But it will take care of it and will automate it and will make it easy with you know basically a single command so if we've done our job then hopefully using that is a really easy way to get your first server up and running yep and that's the main thing whenever you're starting to manage any any number of servers one or, or five thousand is being able to deterministically know that the changes you make will be the same across the board every time and having to manage a single server by manually typing in commands and manually editing configuration gets really, really old <laughs> very fast. Cool. So you can kind of scale up a VPS or, you know, one of those services we've been talking about for a little bit, but kind of what, what happens next? What do you uh, look for when you think that maybe it's time to move beyond that to something a little more complex, a little more robust? Um, what's kind of the next step or what are those indicators you look for for that scaling process? Yep. So if you start thinking about... Um, so let's say database. Uh, your database is getting hit really, really hard. There's lots of reads or there's lots of writes. Uh, it's starting to take up both memory and processing power on your uh, on your instance. And whenever um, one process gets hit hard really like that, it'll affect kind of a ripple effect to everything else on that server. So if MySQL is being hit really hard, that's going to affect Nginx and PHP, PHP's ability to perform, uh, which will degrade performance. And it just kind of starts this long process of performance will get worse and worse and worse and worse because of this one single problem. So that's when you want to start thinking about separating the web server, Nginx and PHP, away from the database. Uh, so that way the database can work as hard as it needs to without really affecting any other processes on the server itself. Um, another thing to think about too is, is uh, load balancing. You want to be able to split up the work between multiple instances of your web, of your web servers. So let's say uh, your one web server goes down, all of a sudden no one's able to go to your website because either there was an error or any number of things on the web server. By putting a load balancer in front of it, you can have not only just one web server, you can have five web servers or 10 or however many that you want. And so that way, uh, whenever you hear the word, uh, the phrase high availability, that's what it's talking about, is that if one thing goes down, you have a bunch of backups. And so that way there's no single point of error or failure. Well, yeah, so let's break it down. So you've got, um, like on a regular old WordPress install, let's say just a little, on a DigitalOcean instance, uh, I mean, you've got WordPress running, you know, PHP, that's the web process, and that's talking to MySQL, right? And then maybe you have like memcache or something with your transients. So what you're saying is that, uh, I mean, you break up the PHP part, the web server, uh, into, you know, N number of servers, they all talk to a central database, right? And then maybe they all talk to a central memcache server. Is that what yep. you're saying? Exactly. 
Yeah, so I mean, you kind of take the take that idea of you know which of these services needs more more uh, more power behind it, and then branch that off. And then as that gets um, as you need even more power behind that, then we get to the point of splitting those services onto multiple service servers uh, amongst themselves, right? Exactly. And one of the one of the great benefits is that let's say before when you were on one instance, you had to have a really really big instance because your database was having to work very hard. The benefit with splitting them all up is that now the web servers that that uh, house PHP and Nginx can actually be really really small because the amount of processing they have to do isn't anywhere near what it was having to do before when it was when it all lived on one box. And so you can have a decently sized server for the database and then a couple of really, really small servers for the web servers. The, uh, sorry, the nice thing about, you can think of this just as kind of like when you write code of separating concerns, because the nice thing about splitting up things like your web server or your application server with your database is that each of those usually have different characteristics in terms of like performance too. You know, one of them might be like um, CPU heavy, one might be memory heavy. And if you have everything on one server, you're trying to just make everything fit. But once you split them off, you can you can kind of use different types of servers. You might have one with more memory or one with more cores, and you can kind of fine tune that um, to the services that are on them. Yep. And there's um, there's some specific services that come along with some of these providers. Specifically, it comes to mind for me is um, some of the services you get with Amazon or AWS. Um, you know, they run specific services and specific types of servers for different functions. One of those, um, particularly being their RDS system for for database um, database stuff, and that's kind of like to me, it kind of seems like a managed hosting of database stuff, kind of like we see for the full WordPress stack, but but just for for killing it on databases. Yep. Uh, Austin, I know you spent some time with um, with RDS recently. Um, you want to talk a little bit about kind of how that works and why you might use that versus another uh, just another plain plain old server running MySQL yes absolutely so um, I know some of you guys listening uh, you might be pretty good PHP guy but uh, you know when it comes to managing databases and being a sysadmin uh, that's probably one of the scariest things you can deal with I mean, maybe you know how to like uh, export the DB and import <laughs> you know import from a backup or whatever but beyond that you know replication cloning uh, multi-master, like all that kind of stuff. It's just like, what the hell's going on here? Uh, RDS just completely removes that concern. At, I mean, <laughs> it's basically uh, it's basically just a hosted database uh, that provides a bunch of kind of you know a wrapper around uh, MySQL, MariaDB, Postgres. Uh, you know, high availability to, and just like Scott said, uh, tuned for databases. So you're, what's good for uh, Nginx and a PHP uh, is not necessarily good for uh, a, a database server. So um, yeah, definitely highly recommend using RDS um, with, and, and it's actually, I mean, we're talking about complicated stuff, you know, multiple web servers, uh, load balanced, I mean, all that kind of stuff, but you could really just, if you have a site that just is super critical and the data is super critical, uh, just, just go on Amazon and spin up an RDS instance and just do your WP config thing and, and point, uh, you know, and point it to the, your RDS instance. Cause I mean, Chris, I know one of the things that we're looked at is that, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's minute level backup restores. Like it's not like once a week it runs, like you can just restore from any point in, you know, in the day. So, uh, definitely, I mean, check, check it out. I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about there, but it's basically just, uh, kind of, just like Scott said, moving services away to like the best service possible for that 
instance. Um, definitely, I recommend RDS. Yeah, and just like Austin mentioned, it's like there's nothing. I mean, it's magical behind the scenes, but they just expose you with a host name, username, and password. So, like, let's say you had a database running on the same server, um, and you started having issues with the uh, like load on your database, and you wanted to split it off. All you have to do is export that database, create one on RDS, import it into there, and just go in your config and just change the credentials to connect to the database, and you're done. It's just migrated. Um, so it's really simple to actually like connect to and integrate with, um, and kind of let them handle you know all the complicated stuff in the background. Yep, I'm a so huge if only fan. It was that, <laughs> Chris, if only it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, RDS has saved me a bunch of time. If only for backups, automated backups. Um, they make it super easy. I mean, it's just you just tell them, hey, I want it backed up, and boom, it's done. Uh, and you're able to specify how long you want it backed up for. You, know, you can have it backed up for seven days, fourteen, however long you want that. And and the fact that it's also highly available, you have the option of specifying multiple availability zones, which means that even though you have the one uh, URL, the one database endpoint, um, they'll actually set up multiple databases in multiple parts of the country, so that if one of those goes down, it'll automatically switch over to the backup. And so you never have to worry about your database being unavailable because there's multiple copies all over the place. And if one fails, then they'll just switch to another one that's working. The uh, the other nice thing about these kind of hosted databases, I mean, Google has their version. I think Microsoft Azure has their version. Um, so this isn't necessarily anything specific to Amazon. You can find the one that you want and use it. But the nice thing is like sometimes when we're getting into these more complicated like infrastructure services, there's trade-offs in terms of using it because you have to deal with the, the complexity of integrating it or the kind of like overhead and trying to understand the service. But what, the hosted databases are one of the easiest ones to like it's, there's almost no downside to it really. Yep. It costs you maybe a little more because it's separate. But when it comes down to it, it's one of those really easy things that it's it's almost a no-brainer just to plug in, and it's going to save you a lot of headaches. Yeah, I love how how easy you guys make that transition sound. <laughs> Austin alluded to it earlier, but um, it, it is super easy when you have like a single site, <laughs> a, a single setup of like a WordPress database. Um, one caveat you may want to uh, listen up if you're running a, a multi-site setup is that um, this process is very much longer and very different depending on the size of your database. So um, yes. if, you, if you got a couple thousand sites on, in, your, uh, in your database you're going to migrate over, duh, um, do plan ahead. <laughs> yep. Do plan ahead for that process. <laughs> it takes, takes some time. Yeah, just, just, uh, just call me. I, I'll, I'll tell you all about it <laughs> free of charge just because I, I want you to have a good time. Yeah, Austin knows what not to do now, so he'll be really good at it. <laughs> One day we may need to just have like a, a carrot episode where we talk about some, some of our experiences doing doing some fun stuff with a big old multi-site setup. We'll get there. Uh, the Sorry, yeah, and just about the migrations, the other thing I want to mention, obviously, is like if you can shut down your site for like an hour while you're doing the migrating, that obviously makes it way easier. Yep. If you have to kind of keep your site going while the database is connected, that's a whole different story. But if you can yep. just say, hey, we're running, you know, a WordPress site, and we want to shut it down for an hour, export it, import it, and then reconnect. It is is quite simple at that level. Obviously, it can get 
can get a lot complicated. Because at that point, it's just a it's just a dump. It's just a SQL dump, and then you re-import to the next the over database, and then change where WordPress is pointing to, and boom, you're done. But like you, like you said, if you want to avoid any downtime, then you have to add the database as a slave to your existing database. Wait for replication to finish. Da 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 da. Like it's just a much more arduous and potentially problematic process. Um, sorry, I, I don't know if you were going to move on, Chris. To but I just wanted to. I mean. Nathaniel talked about a lot of topics earlier, like, you know, load balances and splitting off servers. And I think it's useful for us just to kind of offer up, like, a canonical version of, like, a scaled WordPress server. And I think it's really complicated, but when it comes down to it, like, it can be quite simple. Um, so some of the terms that Nathaniel already mentioned was, okay, you have a load balancer, and that's your entry point, And that just lets you have multiple application servers. And your application server in the kind of PHP WordPress case is it's going to have an nginx on it or apache if you want and it's going to have php and your actual wordpress code base and then the next level is you have your database so in kind of like uh, these days with cloud services like amazon um, the part in the middle is kind of what you should be concerned with and if you can kind of offload the load balancer and database then your life's going to be a lot easier so just like they have rds for databases uh, amazon has an elb elastic load balancer um, so if you let them kind of handle what I'll kind of call like the very f front of the stack and the kind of the very bottom of it, and you're concerned with kind of the middle layer, which is like actually your application server, um, that's going to be a lot easier. You could create a server to use like Nginx for load balancing or HAProxy, um, but that's basically what they're doing with their hosted service. So generally, like if you're writing an application, it's best to just be concerned with that and you'll make your life a lot easier. Um, and that means that you can just kind of scale out those middle application servers as you need to. And your load balancer is just going to seamlessly like apply requests between those um, if it's all working correctly. And that's the model over at Heroku and also partially why Heroku's become so popular is because all you have to worry about is the application. They handle the load balancing, they handle manage the, managing the database. And so that way all you have to worry about is web servers so yeah, same same thing. Well, cool. So we talked a little bit about kind of how all that works. Are there any other complications that kind of come up, or you know, some some tips and, and other things that we might talk about as somebody is looking for? Um, you know, we've got all these servers, and we're we're going to try to go spin up these servers. What's what's um, what's kind of the process that um, you would use when deciding what to do next there? Yeah. So. Uh, like I said before, um, I mean, a WordPress application, uh, I mean, all the components are a web server, you know, running PHP, the database, uh, probably like a memcached instance for your transients, uh, and then the uploads. Um, those are all, the, and, and uh, as far as like, you know, again, web servers, put a load balancer in front of your web servers, it, you know, routes requests, whatever, uh, Amazon, there's whatever uh, database we just talked about RDS or something like it um, feel free to roll, <laughs> roll your own database server but good luck with that um, again memcache server uh, something, <laughs> someone dying over there <laughs> uh, sorry there's sirens uh, and that's my cat <laughs> uh, so then uh, I mean again Amazon's got a memcache uh, service uh, you could feel free to roll your own there the uploads are interesting because this is something uh, that's not quite 
there's not really a standard solution for this um, in WordPress land. Uh, the only solution I've come to, because, well, sorry, the problem, you do, you've got all these, you know, if you've got, let's say, two web servers, uh, obviously you can't have people uploading images to your either web server, because then depending on what web server they hit, you know, they're going to get a 404 randomly, right? So you need to, just like you have your database in a central location and your memcache in a central location, you need your uploads in a central location. And, you know, probably want uh, to stick somewhere, stick those uploads somewhere that's, uh, you know, optimized for storing large amount of data, like S3 or uh, Rackspace cloud files or whatever. Uh, there's some plugins available. Um, I haven't really battle tested any of these, uh, but, you know, the one I'd feel comfortable recommending, just having to take a look at it, was the uh, Delicious Brains came out with an S3 uploads plugin. Yep. Uh, and that one's kind of nice because it goes ahead and, uh, you know, it has the ability to basically the upload lives on the server long enough for it to get uploaded to S3 and then it's done away with. So there's never really any uploads sitting on a server, uh, you know, for it to for it to cause problems with your load balancing and stuff. Uh, and honestly, I mean, I might even, even if I had one server, I might just use this WP offload S3 plugin uh, just because I don't want... You know, I want to be, we're talking about immutable uh, infrastructure in a little bit, but I mean, I want to be able to just shut off a server and delete it and spin up a new one, you know, uh, and I, you can't really do that when you have like 20 gigabytes of uploads. Yep. <laughs> so, and, and that. To, to be clear, Delicious Brains are also the guys that made WP Migrate DB Pro, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal plugin. Um, and I've, I've used the same plugin. Austin WP offload to S3 on two really really large sites, so I've had plenty of battle tested experience with it. It works just extremely well, extremely well. Beyond initial configuration, it just works, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, Austin mentioned a few things, and I think the key term, just so people if they ever hear this, they know what it means, is like when you start getting in beyond one server and scaling, the key is that you want your servers to be stateless, and Austin addressed kind of the few key areas. So this is, means local state. So on your server, local state means I am saving a file to that server. Or if you are handling sessions and that session is handled directly on that server, that's local state. And that's when you get into trouble with scaling out and having multiple servers. So what you want to do, it's, it's pretty simple, is you find the place that has local state and then you move it to a shared service. Just like Austin said, is that's what a database is. Um, that's what you can do if you want your sessions in memcache, for example, and that's what you have to do with your file uploads. You have to move it to a shared service like S3. The great thing is that, you know, three, three, four, five, six years ago, if you were doing this with WordPress, the solution would be to have a server that was a network file storage that would have like an NFS store and you'd have to mount that on every single server that you scaled out. And it, you don't want to do that. It's not good to try and manage your own network file server and so thankfully now is the answer is you just upload to s3 or google's version or rackspace's version um, and let them take care of it so this is easier than it's kind of ever been but that's the key is you have to find out what the areas are that have local state and kind of transfer those through shared service and in general that means your database which is already done uh, uploads and session or cache services and the one thing to mention is 
sounds like we're just kind of shills for Amazon. They have not sponsored us, but <laughs> they have a managed memcache service and Redis, if you use it, called Elasticache. Uh, and it works basically the exact same way as RDS or whatever else. So uh, again, you can just use that. Yep, and the benefit too with offloading to a central uh, static file store like S3 or Rackspace or anything like that is that it's already optimized to serve those static assets a heck of a lot better than any of your web uh, web servers will. And so even in general, when uh, if you're on shared or managed hosting, it's a it's a really good idea to move all of those to another service like that because not only will it be able to serve it better than your server will, you can also put it behind a CDN which will distribute it across the world and make sure that it gets distributed to whoever's visiting your website much faster than it would be otherwise. Yeah, if you have an S3 bucket, it's trivial to add uh, CloudFront, which is Amazon's CDN right in front of it. And so you might as well take advantage of those tools as well. Yep. So another complication with uh, multiple multiple servers and really just managing servers in general is uh, configuration drift. So if you have one and you if you're man- if you're managing it manually, you're having to edit config files um, and they just live on the server. They don't really live anywhere else. And so let's say you go to deploy another one or you want to have your project exist somewhere else. Uh, all of a sudden, you have to make sure that you've done everything that you did on that one server on the second server. But you don't really, other than other than your notes, it's going to be really difficult to be able to re, uh, replicate that. And that's where tools like Ansible and Trails come into play is because you can write all the instructions in configuration, run the tool, and it'll set it all up the way it's supposed to every time. And that way you can just eliminate that uh, lack of confidence knowing, is this going to work or is this not going to work? Having transitioned a couple clients' infrastructure from one to another, it can be that confidence can be very, very reassuring and very, very nice to have. Yeah, it's like when when you only have a single server, you can kind of like cowboy it up and you can just SSH into your server and edit configs and, yeah. and follow like a manual process. You don't have to use some tool like Trellis or, or Chef or Puppet or Ansible or anything like that. Um, but once you start adding servers, you get into a lot of trouble. So... That's why if you can, it's easier to do this from the start, because if you ever need to add another server or if you ever need to recreate a server, actually, I'm going to retract what I just said a little bit because Austin (laughs) mentioned this. You can do that on a single server, but if you ever have to recreate it, then you're in a lot of trouble. The nice thing about using these tools from the start is you can just destroy your server, recreate it in two minutes, and you're confident that it's the same thing. And that also really easily allows you to keep adding servers. Yeah, I was about to like pretty hard disagree with you right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like, what one of the hugest things is I'm I'm so I'm not a sysadmin. I, I guess I describe myself as a full stack developer if that's a real thing. Um, and the thing is, is I mean I'm I'm pretty handy with servers, and my crutch is Ansible um, because unlike like a sysadmin, I'm, I'm sysadmins use uh, I use Ansible and, and Chef and stuff like that. But I'm saying like I'm thinking like you know someone who's just real comfortable just sshing in and just changing configs and stuff um i can't do that because i don't really even know what to look for you know like when i'm i mean i have to google every time like where (laughs) okay where's the error log for php like or whatever you know Uh, so having everything in ansible just declared like right there allows me to think about my infrastructure kind of like a programmer like like i am i mean that's (laughs) that's what i do i don't manage servers i just I, i program so when something's going wrong with the server and I can basically see the entire state of the server in Ansible playbooks, it makes it, I mean, I I can, I can reason about it like a program and it's like super easy. 
um, I know a lot of people might, you know, that, that, that's what might be missing is they're like, well, I don't know how to configure Apache and stuff like that. It's crazy. But, uh, just being able to, you know, prototype on your little, uh, you know, on a little vagrant box or on a staging server and just kind of, you know, just, <laughs> I don't know, do the whole, uh, what is it? Change code, refresh the page type, <laughs> uh, stuff with servers. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a game changer there. Well, because yeah, it acts as living documentation. Like you can always yeah. refer back to your Ansible playbooks and know exactly at what point were things changed, where are they changed, where do they change to uh, with full confidence. There was a client where we had to manage from uh, the old infrastructure to the new and there wasn't any documentation on, on what settings were made and what settings were changed. And so I had a pretty good visibility uh, at a 30,000 foot view of what all of how everything was configured. But when we, when we actually flipped the switch to the new uh, infrastructure, a lot of problems cropped up because there were things that weren't documented and weren't obvious that they made changes to that then caused a lot of pro uh, problems. And we had to switch back temporarily because of those problems. Some services were brought down, uh, people received incorrect notifications, things like that. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's actually a really underrated advantage of server configuration tools, which we probably don't talk about enough or like I should, we should probably spell it out more and things like trellis is if you have a server that you've just installed software and configured manually and you ever need to find out like what versions of software it has where are files where are certain directory paths it's, it's a black box like the surface kind of area of that is almost like it's not infinite but it's pretty close to it you you could look you have to manually kind of go in the server, look in places, look for files, grep for strings, and you really have no idea what like the whole state of the server is. Uh, and the great advantage of Trellis or anything with Ansible is, yeah, it's declarative. You you only see the changes that apply to you that have been made to the server. You don't care about like, oh, all the other kind of base software that comes with Linux, for example, because that won't be described in your like playbooks, for example. So yeah, you get a really kind of concise overview of every single change you've made to a server. Yep. Well, there are some things that are kind of outside of that too. Um, these services that we're talking about through like hosted Amazon stuff, are those things that typically you guys will try to get automated into something like Ansible? Or you know, does this kind of just become where there's just some some stuff you got to create manually and, and once it's up it's kind of up and then uh, we use the the automated tools for for the servers that you're actually configuring or how does that usually work out me personally uh, yeah. I, I usually let ansible handle whatever servers that I'm man managing and then I use a tool called terraform to manage the actual infrastructure itself the servers themselves um, because terraform will go ahead and spin up will spin up those managed services like RDS or the Elastic Load Balancers along with the uh, app servers that I need to run, the stuff that Ansible will uh, deploy to the servers. Yeah, so uh, Terraform is a pretty cool um, piece of software written by the HashiCorp guys who make uh, Vagrant, which we use obviously at Roots for Trellis. And it's pretty neat because you can just kind of describe what servers or services you want and they support a whole bunch of kind of cloud providers. And I think one of the really cool things about it is you can run it in dry run mode and it will tell you exactly what it's gonna change. So it'll say, oh, I'm gonna create this server, I'm gonna delete this server, I'm gonna yep. create this load balancer and you can be 100% confident in what it's gonna do before actually running it like on production or staging servers. Um, and yeah, it's pretty powerful. Yep. Um, we should also mention that um, there's a whole bunch of ways to get your servers actually created. And 
Uh, I'll go over a few of them, but we're kind of assuming at this point that you're going to use some sort of configuration management tool to like set up your servers. You can use Trellis, you can use Ansible, you can use Chef, Puppet, SaltStack. Um, some of the hosts like AWS have their own, like AWS has one called OpsWorks, which uses, mm -hmm. which uses uh, Chef under the hood. They have a thing called CloudFormation. Um, so it's not so important like what tool you use to actually create the servers, um, as long as you're using something to manage like the provisioning, as I'll call them, like setting yep. up the servers themselves. Um, so in terms of like creating them, I mean, you have a ton of options. I, you can, it's really not that bad to, say you're using AWS to manage your servers, like to manually create them yourselves. You can go through their UI and you can create a load balancer. You can create, um, you know, one or two EC2 servers. You can create your RDS instance. And then you can even set up things like auto scaling groups so that, you know, if the load on your application servers gets too high, they'll just add a third server and a fourth and then they'll tear them down. So that's actually not like the worst thing to do because you're setting up these kind of automated things manually. Um, you can then take it a step further. You can use Terraform. Uh, Ansible has the tools to do this as well, which is nice. Uh, you can just describe your kind of infrastructure and run a playbook and it will just create them if they're not created. Um, and there's a whole bunch of tools that do that. So it's kind of less important which one you pick and more yep. important that you do the actual configuration management. Very much so. And what's nice too about uh, Chef, Puppet, Ansible, and Terraform is that they're provider agnostic versus if you use something like uh, Amazon's CloudFormation, CloudFormation is only for Amazon services. And so if you use uh, Ansible or Terraform or any, other, uh, any of those other guys, you can specify, well, I want this setup at this provider, I want this setup at this provider, and this setup at this provider. And at larger, larger companies, not to say you would do this with, with your host, um, they do not only uh, high availability on one provider, but they'll actually have backups. And so maybe most of the application lives at AWS, They'll still have like a few database backups and web server backups on uh, Google's cloud computer, whatever they crawl in it, and they'll have another one on OpenStack or Linode. And so that way, again, there's no single points of failure that if one just all of a sudden goes down, they can go to the backup. And if that one goes down, they can go to the backup of the backup. Sounds complicated. <laughs> well, really, whenever you, once you get into risk mitigation, complexity goes through the roof because you have to manage a ton of edge cases and make sure that if one thing goes wrong, it doesn't tear down everything else. Well, I'll tell you what's complicated is like trying to figure out why a GoDaddy server, like Apache <laughs> server, went down overnight. Like that's complicated. That's literally all could be almost impossible. Because you have to work through the worst interface ever, which is a customer service representative. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, that kind of talks about the automating of setting this stuff up. Um, is there anything you guys want to talk about kind of with maybe some of that auto scaling type stuff you might get into? Uh, so what happens if, you know, seasonally or uh, just for a weekend, uh, yep. you, you go and, and double some traffic or quadruple or, you know, redditize your your homepage? What, uh, what kind of would you do to plan ahead for that? Yeah, so most of my experience has been with AWS, so I'll speak to that uh, specifically. Autoscaling groups are really nice. Um, by themselves, out of the box, they don't have any specific rules associated with them. You'll just tell it, hey, I want um, no less than this number of servers, no more than this number of servers, and I like to keep it within this range. So for example, I'll create an autoscaling group where I want no more than 10 
application servers up, no less than two application servers up, and keep it, if I can, around six. And so let's say, for example, one server is all of a sudden um, doesn't respond to pings on port 80. That's what that's what's called the health check. Um, the autoscaling group will check every so often just to make sure that the server is still quote unquote functioning. Uh, and typically they'll just they'll just ping a port to make sure that it's still open. So let's say that uh, we have six web servers up and all of a sudden one of those servers port 80 stops responding. The autoscaling group will destroy that instance and because it's we're still above that minimum threshold of two, it's fine leaving it at five servers instead of six. Um, if all of a sudden we, we more and more keep going away, it'll keep blowing them away until we reach two servers and it won't go lower than that. Um, and, and the same token applies too. If all of a sudden we need to add more servers, it'll keep adding them until we reach 10. Now what the real powerful thing about autoscaling groups is, is that you can attach something called a CloudWatch metric alarm to it. And what it'll do is that it will measure uh, every so often your instances, either the CPU utilization, uh, memory utilization, disk utilization. I mean, there's a ton of different metrics that you can watch. And if it matches certain conditions, let's say that you want to uh, check the server every two minutes to see that the CPU utilization is below 75%. And if it goes above 75%, should sound an alarm. You can add that to an autoscaling group instance. And if it meets that condition, it'll spin up more servers. Um, and you can also attach the opposite conditions that if, if CPU utilization is below a threshold, start taking away servers. And so that way, as demand increases or decreases, AWS will kind of manage the number of instances uh, that are up at any one time. Yeah, and just to point out that like auto scaling is great, but it should also be kind of a fallback, not your first option. So like if you want yeah. to deal with hitting the Reddit front page, you want to make sure you have some caching to kind of smooth out like that demand that's actually hitting your your PHP application server. Um, so then once you've kind of dealt with that main like first level thing, if you can, I mean, it, it gets harder and harder the more um, dynamic your sites are. But if you're able to have some sort of caching, like you could do um, an Nginx micro cache for five seconds, for example, yeah. so that you're, just you get that five second window so it's never the content's never that out of date but um you're also kind of smoothing out those huge uh, spikes and then as a second level behind that you have the auto scaling then once you really get a lot of more kind of sustained demand over time um the kind of mechanisms kick in that nathaniel just described yep and another thing that people don't typically think about uh is CloudFront for dynamic applications CloudFront doesn't Damn, care I was just about to say that <laughs> yep actually austin and you, you go ahead and tackle it Oh, yeah, so um, I, I wanted to talk about this specifically because uh, I see a lot of confusion uh, on discourse and just the internet at large really about like what CloudFront does. Like some, I think people think like CloudFront is like where you store your images, you know, because they hear like CDN and like Google PageSpeed, like, yeah, I need to put your put your images and stuff and stuff on there. But uh, CloudFront, it's, it's a CDN and it could definitely work for that uh, instance where you're serving images and stuff. But uh, I mean, a lot of times I just stick CloudFront in front of an API server and just let it go to town. Because, uh, I mean, when you have multiple, like just like Scott said, when you have multiple web servers, uh, yeah, you definitely want to have caching on there locally. Like you want to you want to speed things up there, but um, you also want something in, you know, that's at that load balancer level. Uh, that's that's basically a gatekeeper, like that that makes the decision like. Do we even need to go to the? Uh, yep. Do we even need to ask the web server for new information? Has this changed at all? Uh, and that's what that's what CloudFront does. Uh, you stick it in front of a resource, and it caches it, 
at edge locations close to your users. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the gatekeeper. Yep. If the content's not fresh, then it will ask the web server for more information and go from there. But uh, definitely a good good thing to, uh, to, to look into. Yep. It's not just for images. It's, it can be for websites. There was a Rails application that I wrote that I, we didn't have time on the project to implement uh, caching within the app itself. And so we just threw it behind CloudFront and cache every 60 seconds. And so that way, only one request will ever make it through every minute. And that way, however many servers or however many users we get, CloudFront will be serving the majority of the requests. Oh, sorry, but uh, CloudFront costs buku bucks, so be careful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just want to take a 30-second break here to remind people that we're, like, throwing out uh, the most buzzwords per minute of (laughs) any podcast we've ever done. Uh, So many technologies, so many products, so many different things that... Uh, you don't need to know all these. Like, uh, well, I'm, I was just kind of thinking to myself, like, we'll do a little recap at the end of like a uh, simple scaling setup. So uh, I think the best thing is just, you know, like if you don't know some of these, just go and read about them, find out what services are out there. And it's more, we're just kind of talking about like options of, of how to solve these things. So yep. don't get concerned if like we're, if we're throwing a bunch of alternatives or options out and you only know one of them and you don't know the others. Like a lot of these things are competing and I mean, you don't need to know all of them. Um, so just, uh, you know, don't be too worried. <laughs> That's all. And don't feel bad either. Like this is pretty much all the stuff that I'm talking about has been because I've been working with this every day, nearly all day for like the last six months. And so like it's, it's taken a, a long time to, to gather all this knowledge and figure out what are the good practices and what works or not. Um, it just, it takes a long time. So hopefully you can glean from our mistakes. Uh, yeah. And the other thing, which I really briefly wanted to address is some people will listen to this and be like, why didn't you mention Docker? So I'm going to mention Docker <laughs> in one sentence. And that's, if you like it, use it. Uh, we, I don't think any of us have direct experience with it. So that's why we just can't talk about it. But Docker is obviously an option if you want to um, handle this type of um, separation of like concerns and services and also um, kind of scaling and splitting off services on cloud providers. So it's a good option if you know it and you want to look into it and use it, more power to you. We just can't speak to that many specifics. And typically from what I understand, it requires a lot more orchestration than what we're talking about now. And so it's it's a non-trivial thing to set up and manage and, specifically. And- yeah, and I'll and I'll I'll say that I mean the kind of prevailing opinion or or the expert advice I've heard is that Docker is like it, it's not like Ansible or Docker. It's like Docker is like the next level after like what, all the stuff that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's it's like for advanced users. Like it's a, you, if you're using Docker, you know, I mean maybe at some point in the future it will be just like the de facto like easy peasy thing to do, but like right now it's something that if you kind of have to ask then you're not really in the right place yeah i think the problem with docker is whenever you hear people talk about it or see a demo it's like it's so simple to be like oh here's a wordpress docker image all you have to do is just use this image and it's all set up and i think that's gonna kind of lead you into like a world of hurt because that's when you get into problems is they're they're kind of um their marketing language of oh we just have these images and it's really easy that's the point where it, right now it's a little far from reality. Um, but I will say that it's, I think it's gotten a lot better in the past even year mm-hmm. because actually Amazon has a thing called ECS, which is I think uh, um, something container service. Um, and it's their kind of hosted Docker. 
Um, so it's definitely easier than it is, but yeah, just a warning, like if you're, if you're into it, that that's totally fine. Just don't expect it to be maybe as easy as they advertise it. Yep. Well, speaking of images and stuff, I mean, Nathaniel, you're, uh, I know you're using, you're using Packer and stuff. I know I kind of wanted to, uh, that was something that was really interesting to me. Maybe you could talk about which, you know, that and immutable, immutable infrastructure and all that kind of good stuff. Yes. So Packer is actually one of my favorite things. Um, for, for a lot of the same reasons that we were discussing earlier is that I can deterministically know exactly what will be on the server, uh, and, and exact, the exact state that the server will be in whenever it's launched. But what's, what is Packer though? Yeah. Okay. So Packer is a tool written also by the HashiCorp guys, um, that allows you to, um, bake server images. And so what you can do is that you can specify instructions on how you want the server to be provisioned. It'll run those instructions and then save that image off somewhere else. So for example, if, you, if you're on a team and you want to make sure that they have all of the same um, Vagrant images, you can use Packer to build a Vagrant image and then distribute that along around your team. And so that way they'll have the same server. Uh, yeah, they'll just all have the same server. Or for example, uh, with auto-scaling groups, auto-scaling groups on Amazon need a uh, AMI, which is an Amazon machine image ID. And you can use Packer to pre-build the AMIs. And so that way, whenever the auto-scaling group goes to spin up a new instance, it'll spin up that exact image that you want every time. It's always the same. It's awesome. Okay. And so you can, you, you can yeah, right because you don't want to be running Ansible each time you spin up a new server, right? Exactly. And so you run Ansible once, and it takes care of the rest. So, for example, whenever you're building a new uh, EC2 AMI, what it does is that it spins up a new uh, EC2 instance. It'll upload your Ansible instructions. It'll run Ansible. Actually, so you, it doesn't do it. You tell it to do it. So basically, you give it a list of scripts to run, and it'll take care of the rest. And one of the options that you can do is use Ansible. Um, so it runs all the scripts, sets it up, and then it basically just carbon copies that image and saves it off for later. And then you can use that ID to spin up new servers. Dope. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Did, uh, I, I glossed over, did you mention it was also by HashiCorp, Makers of Vagrant? Yep. Okay, perfect. All good things in I, the world. <laughs> yeah, I like, uh, I like promoting them whenever possible because it seems like they always come with, out with great services. Yep. Oh, another thing too that's related is their, uh, is their Atlas service. And so you could use Packer to build your Vagrant image um, and then upload it to them and they'll take care of storing it for you. And so that way, whenever you do uh, Vagrant new or Vagrant up or whatever, you can specify that image ID that's stored on Atlas and it'll download the Vagrant image from Atlas themselves. All for free too, which is even even better. Hmm. Um, and I've used, uh, so, and then just maybe you can confirm this. Uh, I've, so I've used Packer with Rails. So I've never used it with WordPress. Mm -hmm. um, the way I did it, maybe you can tell me if I'm doing it right, uh, live on the air here. <laughs> uh, so what I would do is I would create an image, right? Um, and there's this what there's one of these websites out there that like gives you an Ansible playbook based on you know some checklist or whatever of stuff you want for your Ruby server. So I would create an image based on that minus the app. Correct. Right. Yep. Like like the app files, like the repo. Because and then yeah, and then I spin it up. Uh, you know what that is, and then I deploy to it, Correct. right? Like, and then so it's basically just uh, it's like the a puzzle, and the, the last piece is that the actual app that needs to be deployed. And I deploy that with Capistrano. Is that is that how you do it with WordPress? Yep, totally is. And so uh, I actually t I actually took Trellis and reappropriated it for some needs at work, and um, basically you you provision the server up until all the directories have been made. 
Um, I don't remember where that is in the Trellis playbook, but basically you don't you don't install any of your gems, you don't install any of your composer dependencies, you don't the app doesn't live on the server on the image at all. Um, so you create the image, and then whenever uh, an auto scaling group uh, spins up a new instance, or even when you spin up a new EC2 instance, you have the ability to say, "Hey, I want you to run this." shell script before anything happens. And that'll kind of basically bootstrap the server. Um, you can use that to kind of do some final details, um, setting environment variables if you need to do that, downloading a few extra packages, anything can happen in that step. And then you deploy the application to it and then it'll finish. That'll install your gem dependencies, that'll install your composer dependencies, um, and start any services like Nginx or PHP that you need to. Yeah, I'm relieved. I don't. I don't even know why I asked that question. Because what if you're like, "Ooh, Austin, no, oh, no, <laughs> no, no would have cut it out so you save face." I'm exactly. Sure <laughs> totally would have done that. No. And more specifically, too. So part of part of building images is that you're wanting to make your life easier. If you're having to build an image every time you release a new version of your application, if you're on a rapid release cycle, that is, it's going to be just a super pain because you're having to build images a lot, and it's not a very cheap process. It'll take. Um, you know, 15, 20 minutes, maybe even longer, depending on how much you need to provision on, on your thing. So it saves a lot of time building it once and then deploying that one image than having to continue to build a server every time you need a new one. Um, and then to add over and above that, anytime you release, it's just a lot of work that you don't need to do. Yeah, I mean, provisioning a server from scratch with Trellis, depending on how complicated it is, could take a couple minutes, anywhere up to 10, 15 minutes. So yeah, if you're always scaling and running that whole process, then um, especially like if you hit some traffic crunch and something scales up and you have to run Ansible on every single new server, it's going to take anywhere from say five to 15 minutes to create a new server. Um, so yeah, that is the benefit of um, Packer as well. And I, I know uh, Nathaniel also mentioned the um, AMIs on Amazon. Uh, do you actually know what that stands for? Is it like Amazon machine something? Image. Yep. Yeah. Machine image, yeah. So, yeah, the nice thing about Amazon is you can, almost like you do like a backup or a snapshot of a database, an AMI is just a snapshot of your server. Yep. Um, so that's nice is once you've built it and you have a code on it, like your scaling can either take stuff from Packer or it could just say, hey, just use this AMI snapshot. Uh, and it's obviously not instant, but it's magnitudes faster um, than running the whole provisioning process. Okay, so we get all these servers set up, and we've got our application servers, um, you know, spread out across some different boxes. Um, how does that affect that deployment process, or does it, or maybe what are some uh, what are some kind of things you might run into when, with deployment and, um, and keeping those servers up to date once we get into this larger infrastructure? That's where a lot of, uh, if people have heard another buzzword, continuous delivery, um, that's where this sort of comes into play. Ideally, if you're automating your infrastructure, most of it, you want to automate as much of it as possible and leave as little manual uh, interaction with, with your stack as possible. And so that's where uh, CI, or continuous integration, comes into play. So you blah, 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 type a whole bunch of stuff, commit it to your Git repo and push. Your CI service, it's Circle or CodeShip or whoever it is, picks up those changes and it has the ability to deploy for you. And so, and that could be any number of things. Capistrano, you could have it, you could script it to where it uses Trellis. Uh, you could use Code Deploy. I mean, there's a bunch of different services that you could use. Well, that's after your test pass. Yes, exactly. I was yeah. just going to say, like, <laughs> most people are familiar with with continuous integration CI. Is that 
you know, you're used to seeing it on GitHub. When you make a pull request, it automatically runs a test on your server and gives you like a green or red build. And um, the idea is with con continuous delivery is that every time you have like a green build and it's merged to master that you're automatically deploying it. You never want your kind of master to be like in an undeployed state. Yep. Um, so every time those builds pass, just keep deploying over and over. And you can say with confidence because it's all your tests have passed that it's all going to work. And so you can just deploy and you're good to go. Nathaniel, WordPress developers don't write tests. <laughs> WP devs. Pie in the sky. Continuous delivery with WordPress devs is just editing a, a files via FTP. Continuously. <laughs> yeah. You just have a stream open. I think they were way ahead of their time with that. We were, uh, we were doing continuous delivery back when it wasn't even a thing. Yeah, the build's always green, or maybe always red, I don't know. <laughs> the build is always green. Awesome. Well, the last oh, item kind of nice. on our list here was maybe we could talk a little bit about Capistrano versus Trellis deploys. Um, I don't even know what question to ask there. What, uh, what kind of <laughs> is the difference and where might you want yeah. to look for one or the other? Um, I mean, when you get down to it, deploys is just how do you get your code onto the server? And so obviously you can, you could FTP files, you could SCP files. Um, most of the more, actually, I'm not gonna say modern, but then the next level was people would uh, deploy via Git. So um, obviously your code's in a, some sort of version control repository. So if it's Git, you would use that to pull that code down on the actual remote servers. Um, and you know, there's probably other steps involved in, in deploying. You might have to restart a service. You might have to move a file. Um, the nice thing about um, tools like Capistrano is they kind of pioneered um, this nice kind of folder structure where you run a deploy and it creates a new kind of timestamped release. That's like the core idea is that every deploy you're creating a new release of your um, application. And then once the deploy is done, they update a sim link called uh, current in their case to point to the new release so that you can always kind of just update that pointer of that current sim link back to any release if you want to roll back or move back and forward between them. Um, and so the Trellis deploys, I mean, it's really doing the exact same thing. We've modeled it after the Capistrano workflow. I mean, the only difference is it's just integrated in Ansible. So if you're already using kind of Trellis to provision your servers, um, well, you might as well use it to deploy as well because you don't have to use this separate tool um, and kind of duplicate some of your configuration and figure out how to do that. We do it for you. Um, the other nice thing is that you don't need, like Capistrano is a Ruby gem. So you kind of need to figure out how to get Ruby running on your project and, and you might not know Ruby. So if you need to customize things, it makes it harder. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I mean, that's really the kind of superficial difference between them. Um, and a lot of services that exist for deploying, I know Nathaniel mentioned uh, code deploy, it's kind of like a generalized deploy service. Mm -hmm. um, at its core, it's really just doing the same thing. It's just figuring out a way, and they offer different methods to get your files onto a server. And then they might let you run things if you need them for assets like gulp or grunt or restarting a service, etc. cetera. Um, and I think Nathaniel might be able to speak so that's kind of one option, is there's all these set of tools that just uh, send your files to the server somehow for a deploy. And I, it's funny because you guys talked about um, kind of Packer and stuff where you 
exclude the coder application. But I know there's some people who do uh, things, and actually here's the issue with some deploys, is that let's say you have a huge number of auto-scaled services and you need to deploy them all. You want them pretty much to happen at the same time or in par- parallel. Mm-hmm. If your infrastructure is done correctly, it's not necess- it's not a huge issue for some applications if uh, a request comes into server A and it's on, let's say, version one of your software. And at the same time, while a deploy is going on, a version comes into server B that's on 1.1. Um, that actually could get into huge issues if they're dealing with like a different database schema, for example. Um, maybe not likely in WordPress land, but like it can happen. Um, so I know that there's some people who do things where you can bake it into an image and then you can update every image at the same time. Something that's a little more um, consistent or lets you do things more at the same time instead of shipping, like running the same kind of process in parallel or linearly to all these servers and you can kind of get timing differences. I don't know if you can talk more about that. or Yeah, for sure. So there's a couple different strategies to mitigate that problem. Uh, one of them being a canary. And so the idea with Canary is that going back to the load balancer, you have the load balancer and then any number of web servers behind it. Um, So let's say that you have five web servers. Uh, The Canary strategy says that um, you're going to take one of the servers out and then that server with the new version of the application, you're going to put in, you're going to put that into the load balancer and send maybe 10% or 20% of the traffic to it. And if after five minutes or so there haven't been any errors, then you know that it's all working accordingly and then you'll finish the deployment and switch out those last those remaining four servers with the new servers that are running the new um, the new application. That takes a bit more orchestration, and so I don't I don't tend to use that. Um, with the one that I do use is uh, blue green deployments. And so the idea with blue green is that you actually have two environments um, uh, in parallel with each other, one being active, one being not. So let's say for example that the current infrastructure with uh, the application servers running is green. Um, you will go ahead and deploy all of your changes to blue and then just switch, point your load balancer to blue instead of green. And so that way, if things go rotten, you can quickly point it back to the servers that you know are working because they haven't been thrown away yet. And uh, once you know the blue is working, you can then throw away green, uh, build up green again whenever you have the next deployment and just keep switching back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, I I think... um... Oftentimes we rec- like we talk about a lot of best practices here and things you should do, and deploys are kind of one of those things where um, any tool like I think Capistrano can even do this, but um, Ansible can definitely is running deploys in parallel. So obviously there might be tiny time differences between like when the deploys finish and at what stage they're at at the same time, but those are going to be really minor differences. And I'd like to say it's almost just one of those things that in most cases you kind of have to live with. Um, especially with WordPress, like it is rare because you, if you're running something like Laravel or Rails and you have a migration system and during your deploy, you run the migrations and changes the database schema, um, that definitely can cause a little more problems maybe than uh, something like WordPress where it's not as common. So I would say that like, as long as you're not trying to deploy out to 200 servers, which is definitely going to kind of exponentially make this a bigger problem. Like if you have a small number of servers, um, just kind of make sure it's deployed in parallel and you're usually not going to have many issues. Because that way it's gotten, it's completed a lot faster and that, that window of time where things could get messed up is made shorter by how quickly it completes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, one kind of term, 
which I'm trying to remember as I'm bringing this up, is uh, people kind of talk about like um, maybe like hot deploys or like or zero downtime deploys. Yep. Is, is ideally what we want to strive for. What that means is that if you're in the middle of deploying and someone goes to your site, they don't want to see a 500 or whatever error. They want the site to be accessible and to work. And um, Capistrano's workflow that I kind of described supports that by default because when you your web server, so in the case of WordPress like Nginx, its web root is pointed to that current symlink. And while you're deploying to another folder, you're not overwriting files in the same folder that you're serving from. That's the problem with uh, SCP or FTP deploys. They're not zero downtime. You can, someone can hit your website when you're in the process of copying over like half the files. <laughs> um, so with, you know, Trellis, um, with the Capistrano workflow, that pointer only gets updated once the deploy is done. And then you kind of do a reload of your web server, which means that like literally Nginx reload um, it doesn't actually restart the whole web server. It just means that the processes that are currently serving a request will finish that current request, and then they'll reload from like your new config. So you will have zero downtime seamless deploys, and that's what we want. Well, cool. Is there, a, is there any kind of thing you need to think about is if you are scaling up and down multiple machines, how you would know which machines to go do those deploys on? Is there kind of a best practice or something simple to make that not a problem? Um, you mean like if a server was in the process of either scaling up or down? I just mean if you're doing Ansible deploys and there's uh, two, three, or four or more um, different um, web servers out there that you're, you have in, in play at any given time, how do, you, um, how do you know which ones to go and do the deploy to? Yeah, so the kind of your maybe your first solution or iteration would just be if you have three servers without auto scaling you just hard code those ips or host names right into your like ansible host file or if you're using something like capistrano you could hard code those ips in there if you're using auto scaling which ideally you should be it's great um, ansible has an awesome thing called dynamic inventories so you kind of provide it with your uh, aws credentials like your api um, key and token and then instead of having this like static uh, inventory or host file in Ansible, like if you look in Trellis by default, we have static files. Um, you can supply, there's like a script that comes with Ansible. It's called like ec2.py. So it's a Python script and they call it dynamic inventory. And it will query the Amazon API with your credentials and it will return like the current state of your servers. So every time you run a provision or a deploy in Ansible, it will go to the API, get the current servers that are like up and healthy and running and automatically deploy to all of them. So that that is the advantage of using something like uh, Ansible over Capistrano where that would be, I guess it's possible to be way harder. You have to find plugins and script stuff. That is super cool. Uh, yeah, sorry, just to quickly mention, they have dynamic inventory scripts for like so many cloud providers. They have DigitalOcean yeah. ones, they have Rackspace, they have Microsoft. So, and you can actually write your own, they're pretty simple. Um, and yeah, that's like really the power of kind of Ansible. Yep, code deploy behaves in a similar way. You just tell um, the code deploy what uh, tags, like EC2 tags to connect to. And so you can specify, hey, I want to deploy to this auto scaling group or these set of EC2 tags and it'll take care of the rest for you, same way. Well, that kind of brings us through this whole process. Do you guys want to give any final thoughts or any encouragement for somebody who's going down this um, this 
this process for the first time? Any sort of recap? Yeah, I was just going to kind of sum up, like, if you are going from one server to multiple, or maybe you just want to have a more kind of bulletproof server setup. Like, most people know off the top of their heads that if you only have one server and something goes wrong to it, you're kind of screwed. Um, so it's obviously a good practice to have redundancies from the start, even if your traffic doesn't necessarily warrant it. Like, if, it, if you still want your website to always be available, um, have at least two servers. So there's kind of two, three things. One, you could go with one of those managed WordPress hosts, but since we're not talking about those today, we'll skip over them. Next option is roll your own. So it's pretty simple. You have probably a pretty light server that's running a load balancer. That can be Nginx or it can be HAProxy. Next up, add two application servers. That's running Nginx and PHP. And that's where your WordPress code is. And then second, have at least one database server, but here's where the problems come up. If you want some real redundancies, you want a second uh, backup database server. And that's kind of where you get into problems rolling your own. So you could, you could du duplicate that setup on DigitalOcean with droplets. You could have each one being a $5 a month one. It's a pretty cheap redundant setup. You could go to Linode, Rackspace. You could use Amazon EC2s like in their raw form. Or then the kind of next level, or not next level, but an alternative, which is even easier, which is what we talked about, is you get an elastic load balancer on Amazon. You have two EC2 servers, maybe in an auto-scaling group if you think you're gonna need it. But if you just want like a simple setup with redundancy, just have two EC2 servers running the same thing, Nginx and PHP with your WordPress code, and then use uh, RDS for the auto-scale database. And that is a nice simple way to get a pretty kind of bulletproof, um, redundant multi-server stack that you can easily make changes to if you want to, and it has kind of a lot of power behind it. So I know like we talked about a lot of concepts, a lot of buzzwords, but when it comes down to it, like either of those options aren't, I mean, they might be complicated if you're just getting into it, but there's tools to make it easier, things like Ansible. Um, so that's kind of like, that should be almost like your default state that you should kind of strive to. Well, cool. That's a great wrap up. Um, thank you guys very much for being on. Um, if people, I mean, we, I think all, everybody here has been on an episode before, but um, I'd love to let people be able to follow you individually if they want to. Uh, Scott, how can people get a hold of you or follow you on Twitter? Or what's the yeah, best Twitter, way? Yeah, uh, Twitter, Walkinshaw. Um, it's probably plastered all over the root site too, especially when we put up the link to this uh, podcast. And sorry, I got to interrupt your outros for one second chris i forgot what's one thing when describing these default server states uh since it's wordpress you need a place for uploads so use s3 and then that's it all right next up <laughs> okay closing thoughts and how to get a hold of you for nathaniel uh closing thoughts don't beat yourself up if this is like it feels really complicated or overwhelming like take your time be patient you can and will figure it out just give yourself the time to do so uh find me i'm nathaniel ks pretty much everywhere Cool. Austin, same thing. What's up? Uh, go to austinfray.com and read blog posts about probability and statistics for computer science. <laughs> Don't do that. No one do that. <laughs> Don't do that. My, my blog has latex on it. Sweet. Well, It's actually pronounced latex. Uh, I bet okay. you didn't know that. 
uh, like, I literally never talk about LaTeX <laughs> with people out loud. So, like, this might have been, like, the first time I ever I'm just relishing it. the opportunity to correct Austin Pray. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Uh, well, cool. Thanks, guys. Uh, as usual, show notes um, are on reach.io slash podcast or radio or something. I should figure that out and read it correctly. Um, you can follow... It's slash podcast. You can follow... Um, the Roots, the whole Roots organization on Twitter, it's uh, at RootsWP. And, uh, of course, if you've got any questions, um, there will be a post on Discourse, discourse.roots.io, um, where we can kind of discuss some of the stuff and, and chat about it. Uh, so thanks for listening. If you guys like this, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you go on to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, that would be that would be great. Make us feel real good. Um, and uh, we appreciate appreciate you guys listening. Um, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Later.